You can turn, if you like, to Proverbs 24. That's the first uh, selection I'm going to be reading is from Proverbs 24. But I'm also going to be in Proverbs 14, 28, and 16, and that's just in the first minute. Because, <laughs> because in this, our last sermon in our Proverbs series, I want to remind you that Proverbs cannot be approached in a verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter approach. It doesn't come to us in that way. It instead is organized differently, and so as we look at God's Word to us today, we've got to go all throughout the book of Proverbs looking at the topic of work. And so this morning we'll be all over the book of Proverbs, but we will begin in chapter 24, verses 30 through 34. Hear now the word of the Lord. I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber, and want like an armed man. Proverbs 14, 23, In all toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. Proverbs 28, 19-20 Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. A faithful man will abound with blessings, but whoever hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. Proverbs 16, 3 Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. This is the word of the Lord. So in several of the jobs I had before, even before I went into ministry, I served in the role of manager. I managed a pizza restaurant at one point. I managed the parking services at my university. And managing managing can be a challenge when you're dealing with people who don't want to work. And I thought back over the years and wrote down just some of the excuses I heard for people not showing up at work. I think my cat is depressed. (laughs) The vending machine was out of coffee this morning. Uh, Maybe understandable. I forgot. Understandable until we went to his room and found him in his uniform, clocked in, playing video games. I have one more level to finish on my video game. I really got that one. That was a college student. The military police were outside looking for me, and I had to hide for three hours. There, there was a bigger story there. I am waiting for my socks to dry. And my favorite, I got a bad haircut, and I can't go out. My favorite one really, though, is from the Proverbs, Proverbs 26, verse 13. The sluggard says, there's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the streets. Just looking for any excuse. I can't go out. I can't go work. There's a lion roaming about. Didn't stop anybody else. No, we're going to look this morning at work. And I want to clarify before anybody tunes out, there are different types of work. We're not necessarily talking about paid employment, although that's a part of it as well. Attending school is work. Keeping a home is work. Raising children is work. 
even in retirement, you are working. Because work is what we do to engage the world with the intention of improving it. We might get paid for doing that. That's nice. We might not. But all work, from school to retirement, all work has this in common. It is other-oriented. It is future-looking. And with that understanding, work is a big part of all of our lives. Therefore, it should not surprise us that God's Word speaks often of the work that we do. Proverbs especially has much to say about how we view work, how we approach work, what our attitude is to be. And this is where I'm going to give the usual Proverbs disclaimer that we've given every week. As we approach Proverbs, we are not looking for it to teach us how to be saved. But rather, we are looking to see how saved people live. We're not looking here to see how do we find the gospel of Jesus Christ, but rather we're seeing how do we live out the gospel of Jesus Christ that we have received. And so as we look at how Proverbs speaks of the work that we do, we're not looking to see how it leads us into salvation, how we will uh, find ourselves pleasing to God and, and acceptable to Him because of our work. We are rather seeing as those who have been redeemed and saved and accepted through Jesus Christ, adopted into the family of God, brought into him and called by his name, how do we then approach the work that we are called to do? Because work in our culture, in many cultures, but especially so in ours, work is viciously and violently distorted in our minds. And so of all the things that we could look at in Proverbs alone, there's a lot about work. We're going to focus on the story of work. What it is what it's become, and what it, has, what it has meant to be. The first thing that I want us to see is that under God's design, work is good. Under God's design, work is good. Proverbs doesn't depict our work as something that is bad or annoying or even something that just has to be tolerated. Proverbs, in, in harmony with all of the testimony of Scripture, tells us that work is a good thing. Proverbs 12, 14, from the fruit of his mouth, a man is satisfied with good and the work of a man's hand comes back to him. When we work, good things return. Proverbs 14, 23, in all toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. God has designed us to be creatures that work. But Why? And I, and I promise you, I did not coordinate with, with our brother Richard this morning when he prayed in our opening prayer. The answer to that is that we are made in the image of a God who works. And Richard prayed that this morning. That we imitate a God who is a God that works. The first thing that Scripture reveals to us about God is that He creates, He designs, He builds, He works. Then in the garden, after he creates Adam and Eve, look at the purpose that God gave them in Genesis 2, 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Many of us, as we picture the garden of Eden and the creation, the ideal days before sin, we picture Adam and Eve just, just chilling out, right? They're just having a good time in paradise. But then they sin and oh no, now they have to work. No. In the very good, sinless creation of God, there is work. 
Before there was sin, temptation, evil, sadness, death, or frustration. Before all that, when all was still very good, there was work. Proverbs reflects this truth. In Proverbs 18.9, listen to this and keep the verse up there a minute. Whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. Some of you who are working in management are taking that down. Pause and look at that. Being slack in your work is what? It's destructive. It's destroying. Because work, that good thing that existed in paradise, work is our partnering with God in the act of creation. Genesis 1.28, God blessed the man and the woman and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. That was the work that they were given, to go out and subdue the earth. Because not all the earth was the Garden of Eden. There was a, a whole world of creation waiting to be brought into order. Waiting to be made more like the beauty that God intended for his creation. And he called man and woman into that job of beautifying the earth, of continuing the work of creation. This is still on the sixth day of creation. God takes the baton of his creative work and he passes it on to mankind and he tells them, subdue the earth. What God has created mankind is to work, to cultivate because work is taking part in God's creative and recreative activity. And when we reject that, being slack in our work, we're doing the opposite of that. We are destroying. So very far from being a bad thing or even an unfortunate necessity, work is a good thing because when we work, we are joining in the activity of God. So when Proverbs describes the excellent wife, even at the end of Proverbs, one of the traits it applies to her in Proverbs 31, 13, she sees wool and flax and she works with willing hands. You see that? Willing hands. The excellent wife approaches her work the way that Adam and Eve did before sin, recognizing that work is not something to be avoided, but rather embraced. When we work, when we do good work, we are imitating the God who works. This is why we sometimes use, use the word vocation to describe our jobs. The word vocation comes from the Latin word vocare, which means to call. A vocation is a calling, something you are called to do. Whether you are called to be a student, whether you are called to be in the home, whether you are called to retirement at this stage in life, you are called to it with a purpose. Work is not a dreary necessity. It is a calling. It is a way in which God has invited you into knowing Him better and into partnering with Him in His work. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote the, Lord of, the famous Lord of the Rings trilogy, he also wrote a short story called Leaf by Niggle. And it's the story of, a, of an artist and worker named Niggle who is, is very particular about his work. And he, he has this picture, this vision in his head of a tree that he wants to paint. But even better than that, it's a whole mountain, a whole giant world that he wants to, to create and to paint. But he, he's so particular about it and, and he's, he's, he's working on one leaf. And he's getting the painting and the drawing of that one leaf just right. But he keeps getting distracted. He keeps getting called away. And, and he, in, in the end, once, once his life is over, he's, he's done nothing more than finish that one leaf 
on that great canvas that he had prepared for this beautiful work. And he was so sad and so despondent that that little work that he had done amounted to almost nothing. And that painting after his life was taken and put in a gallery in a museum and it was titled Leaf by Niggle. You know, that's all he produced. But the story goes on and shows that after he is taken into the afterlife, is, is taken into the eternal realms, he sees the tree. I didn't think I was going to get worked up over this. He, he sees the tree that he had envisioned in his heart all his life. The tree that he was wanting to recreate, of which he only made just a tiny little part in this world. He sees the reality of it. He says, it's a gift. That, that's your work. Whatever you're doing, you're, you're not going to be able to recreate the whole thing that God is doing, but, you, but you're getting a leaf. You're doing one thing. You're, you're bringing order to one bit of chaos in the world. You're not transforming all of society, but you're shaping one child's heart or one friend's heart. You're not saving every sick person, but you're comforting one who is sick. You're not creating palaces, but you're helping this home not have a plumbing leak. You understand? You, you're working on a leaf, but the tree is real. And you're taking part in it. You're bringing that beauty into the world. Listen to the invitation of Jesus, which you, you heard already this morning in our assurance of pardon from Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Aha! We see. Jesus doesn't want us to work. He wants us to rest. He immediately then says, take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He calls us to work, to take his yoke upon us. That work is restful, it is joyful, it is life-giving, because we are building into and participating in what we were meant to do, what we were designed to do. Under God's design, work, work is good. And so Christ did not come to save us from work. He came to restore meaning to the work that we do. But there is a problem, obviously. Work isn't all good. I'm not saying that we all should enjoy our work every moment of it, looking forward to it. It's not always rewarding or fulfilling. I, honestly, I, I, there's a number of you that I talk to sometimes in the mornings on your way to work. You'll give me a call and we'll chat as you're heading into work. And some of you try to get that conversation to go on and on as long as possible. Because you know as soon as you hang up, you've got to go into work and you don't want to be there. And some of you... Call and give me a happy hello and you are joyful to tell me where you're going and what you're doing and you can't wait to get to it. And I thank God for that. That's a blessing. But not everybody gets that. Some days, those of you that love your work hate it. And some of you hate that work almost every day. Proverbs shows us that when sin entered the world among the many good things that sin affected and even corrupted, work... And our relationship to work was also affected by sin. And so we see even in Proverbs how under sin's deceit, work is perverted. Under sin's deceit, work is perverted. I mean that word perverted not in the sense of it's all bad, but in the sense of it's, it's turned away from its original purpose. It's turned away from what it was meant to be and turned into something else. And that's a product of the deceit of sin. That which under God's design was good, under sin's deceit, is perverted. 
Proverbs 21, the desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. All day long he craves and craves. What was meant to be a joyful imitation of God becomes something to avoid or even abuse. Such is the effect of sin, as we see later in Genesis, Genesis 3. After sin has entered the world, the Lord says to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Yes, work existed in the perfect world before sin, but when sin entered the world, it takes work and makes it wearisome, makes it toilsome, makes it frustrating. Such is work after sin's deceit. One of the ways that sin deceives us is by making us think that work is bad and should be avoided on principle. We see this often in Proverbs when it describes a recurring character in Proverbs, the sluggard. You already heard from Proverbs 24, I passed by the field of the sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense. Now note that in Proverbs, the person who avoids work is the person who lacks sense. Behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles. Its stone wall was broken down. And then I saw and considered it. I looked and I received instruction, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. The sluggard is the person who goes to great effort, ironically, to avoid working. Proverbs 20, verse 4, The sluggard does not plow in the autumn. He will seek at harvest and have nothing. Proverbs 19, 15, Slothfulness casts into a deep sleep, and an idle person will suffer hunger. These verses, they make sense to us by themselves. Someone who doesn't work is setting themselves up for problems down the road. So, yeah, that, that's common wisdom. Being a sluggard is, is bad. No pain, no gain. But considering that in light of what we just looked at, if work is, is one of the ways in which we imitate our maker, one of the ways in which we join in the creative and restoring activity of God in the world, then to avoid work is it's worse than laziness. It's not just laziness. Sin tries to break our relationship with God because it breaks our relationship to work. Sin tries to break that relationship that we have to our work in order to hurt our relationship with God and our imitation of Him. So sin deceives us into thinking work should be avoided. But another way sin deceives us is by making us believe on the other hand, because some of us don't really buy into that lie that, you know, I need to avoid work. Some of us are engineered the other way, aren't we? And you know who you are. You're the ones who, as I read about the sluggard, you're like, yeah, stupid sluggards. Another way that sin deceives us is by making us believe that work is what makes us valuable. Proverbs 21, 5 and 6, the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance. But everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. The getting of treasures by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor and a snare of death. What Proverbs is getting at is that we can end up being careless in our work or we can work deceitfully because we are so desperate to achieve 
what we think work will give us, which is value, which is security, which is comfort. When we do this work, which was meant to be a part of the restoring and beautifying activity of God's kingdom, it becomes a tool of death and destruction to us. Proverbs 28, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. A faithful man will abound with blessings, but whoever hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. Sin deceives us and tells us that we, we can only be happy. Life will only be meaningful. We will only be valuable if our work succeeds in bringing us fame or respect or wealth. And so we do whatever it takes to succeed in work. We take shortcuts. We deceive others. We overwork. We ignore the balance of work and rest that God has commanded. We, we hitch our wagon to success. And now remember, I'm not just talking about nine to fivers here. I'm talking to corporate people, blue collar people. I'm talking about anybody with a calling to raise a family, anybody with a calling to work in their home, anybody who's working in their neighborhood, any calling before God, we can, we can hitch our value, our worth, our sense of well-being on how well we perform in that area. If my grades aren't here, but are instead here, I'm less valuable than I would be if my grades were up here. If my home is not looking as clean and as ordered as her home, I'm not as good of a person as her. I'm not as valuable. I'm not as lovable. If I am not climbing the ladder at the rate that someone else is, if I'm not earning as much as my peer is, I am less valuable. All of us are in danger of taking the good thing that God gave us so that we could partner with Him in building His kingdom, that good thing, and turning it into something that is an idol, something that determines our worth, something that in the end imprisons us and enslaves us. Psalm 127 puts it this way, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. All that hard work, all that overwork, all that straining and striving is not going to get you what you seek to accomplish in the end because he gives, God gives what you need. The gospel shows us that our value, our worth, is something given by God and not something we earn by working. Sin would deceive us into thinking the harder you work, the better you do, the more you succeed, the more valuable you are. And that perverts the relationship to work that we should have. We are reminded in Romans 9 that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God has mercy the it in this case is your very salvation your very standing before god does not depend on your will or your exertion but instead on god who has mercy because god's love is not a paycheck or a reward for your work you are not a child of god if you do enough to deserve it god does not see you through some sort of lens of what you contribute or of how hard you work, or how well you do, he sees the child that he has chosen and loved, and for whom he sent Christ 
to die in your place. That was not based on your will or exertion. It was based on God who has mercy. Christ laid down his life for you because he chose to love you, not because you did enough to deserve him. And so your worth, your value in his sight is calculated by the cost of the life of Christ, not by the effort you put into it. Under sin's deceit work, all work is perverted. Deceiving you into thinking that you need to avoid that work because there's nothing good in it. Or that you need to give your life to work in order to mean anything. And the gospel speaks into both of those and corrects the perversion of sin's deceit. The last thing we see is that under Christ's dominion, work is redeemed. If all we had of the story of work was that it was made good and under sin it's perverted, it wouldn't be a very encouraging story to leave you with. I would be sending out to your weak, to your labors, downhearted and frustrated and waiting for a quick end to your toil, no doubt. But the gospel of Jesus doesn't leave us there, not even when it comes to our work. And so our hope that we will look at is that under Christ's dominion, work is redeemed. Proverbs hints at this, giving us glimpses of the ways of God. In Proverbs 16, 9, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 16, 3, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. There is this promise that despite what sin has done to pervert and destroy and undo our relationship to work, making it frustrating and difficult and sometimes unfruitful, despite all this, God yet ensures that there will be success in our work. Our labors will be worthwhile. But it's not a promise that if we would just work hard enough, we'd be okay. It's not a guarantee that more work equals more success. More hours ensure a better outcome. That's our modern society's lie. The lie that compels and drives burnout culture. Author Brené Brown wrote a compelling article called, you know, Overworking is Not a Virtue. And it wasn't until I read that, that, that title that I realized, yeah, I've, I, I naturally accept that. You know, even, even with other pastors, when we get around and, and subtly and very humbly and, and righteously brag about how we're overworking, that's not something to boast in. That's our modern society's lie. The only way I can be sure of success is if I work myself until I can't do anything more. It's all down to me to ensure that my work means something in the end. So what the gospel introduces to make us able to work rightly, to work in a healthy way with hope is this. The gospel puts our work under Christ's dominion. With Christ as the king of all creation, whenever we work, we are ultimately serving King Jesus. We are not working ultimately to make our employer or ourselves wealthy. We're not working with the goal of making our company bigger or our name and home more reputable. We're not working just to make a living. We're working in all things under the ultimate authority of Christ. 
Paul writes this in Colossians 3, speaking to servants. He says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. He's speaking to people who have an earthly master, an earthly employer. And he says, yeah, do a good job for them, work for them. But whatever you're doing, you're not working ultimately to please them. You're working to please the Lord. You're doing it for him. So when you begin to see your work as being under Christ's dominion, under his authority, working for him, serving him, building his kingdom through what you're doing, it redeems your relationship to the work that you do. For those prone to overwork, those who cannot rest because they fear failure or rejection, Proverbs says the fear in Proverbs 19, the fear of the Lord leads to life. And whoever has it rests satisfied. Those who overwork cannot rest satisfied because they're working to please someone who is never pleased, whether it's themselves or spouse or the opinions of their friends or an employer. But the fear of the Lord leads to life. And when you have the fear of the Lord, when you're working under his dominion, you rest satisfied. The Christian can rest because their success comes from God. Come to me, he said, and I will give you rest. But there's more to those who struggle to work. And I'm not just talking about the lazy. I'm talking about those who don't understand why there's always another diaper to change. Why there's always another bag of trash to be carried out. Why I go into the same factory and do the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over and nothing ever seems to change. Those who look at the labors of their hands and worry that it's time wasted. That I'm just killing time to get a paycheck until the Lord returns. To those, the gospel promises something as well. Yes, the Christian can rest because their success comes from God, but also the Christian can strive because God has promised that their work has meaning. The Christian can strive because God has promised that their work has meaning. You may not see it. You may not understand it. You may think that your calling, your work, what you are doing is too insignificant. It's too banal. It's too boring. It's too obscure to really matter. But you are wrong. And I'm not saying that just to a select few people in the room. I say that to all of you, whatever God has called you to be doing, it has meaning because you are imitating your creator who made things in galaxies that no one will ever see or appreciate, but he made them well, who does things that we will never see or understand or appreciate. You are shaping, you are fashioning, you are restoring one small corner of the kingdom of God, you are painting one little leaf of the great tree that gives your work meaning. Have you heard the parable? Not in Scripture. This is a modern parable of the three bricklayers. You know, the story goes that a man came upon three men all laying bricks side by side. And he went to the first one. He said, what are you, what are you doing? And he's like, duh. Laying bricks. Went over to the next man a few feet over. What are you guys doing? Oh, no, we're, you see, we're building a wall. We're, we're putting these bricks together. It's going to make this beautiful, strong wall. 
Okay. He goes to the third guy. He says, what are, you, what are you guys doing? You don't know? We're saving lives, man. Yeah. This guy asked me if I could help him build a hospital. And we're putting, this, we're putting these bricks down. We're going to build it up. And this is going to be a place where people come and their lives are saved. Okay. Three men. Three identical activities. One of them understood the meaning of his work. Your work has meaning. But not necessarily because of what exactly you do. They were all doing the same thing. Your work has meaning because of what Christ has done. By dying to defeat sin, in rising to defeat death, He takes our labors, all of them, out of the realm of futility and puts them in the story of His victory. And I know that's hard to believe when you're cleaning up vomit on the floor or when you're sitting in an office stamping one paper after another, sending it to somebody else and taking another stack. Let me just stamp another paper. Or when you're dealing with kids that just don't seem to understand and want to obey. It doesn't feel like your labors are in the realm of the victory of God. But you have to look beyond what you're experiencing. That's what we saw In our confession of faith this morning in 1 Corinthians 15, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You hear that? We have been given victory through Jesus. Therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The work of the Lord is not just ministry. Don't think that in this room the only people really doing the work of the Lord are the pastors, maybe elders and deacons, maybe those who teach Sunday school. That's the work of the Lord. No, brothers and sisters. Those those certainly are the work of the Lord. But if everything that we do is done to the glory of God, the work of the Lord is every good labor that you take in part in. Everything that imitates God's good work. Everything that seeks to build, to restore, to in some small way make better His creation. That is the work of the Lord. Be steadfast in it. Be immovable in it. Abound in it knowing that it's not in vain. Under Christ's dominion. Work is redeemed. Therefore, work with confidence because your work is not in vain. Proverbs addresses work again and again and again because we cannot escape it. And so in addressing it, Proverbs points us to both the beauty and the limits of work. Limits because work cannot refresh our soul the way only God can. Work cannot complete us secure us, give us worth the way that only God can. But yet there's beauty in work as well because it is given by God and it supports His purposes and His kingdom in the world. So as we're about to sing in a minute here, I want you to listen to the words. Some of the words are very, very obviously about work. And you'll pick up on that and you'll say, oh, that's why they picked that song. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. But then there's lines like this. His will be done, His kingdom come on earth as is above. Quoting the Lord's Prayer. Lines that are a prayer for us in our work. That our labors 
would participate in bringing the kingdom of God, in carrying out His will on earth. It is not God's will that sick people be neglected. Everyone who works with sick people in a hospital, in a nursing home, in a home taking care of an elderly loved one or a young child sick, everyone is carrying out the will of God. It is not God's will that ignorance remain unchallenged. Every teacher in a school, every instructor in the home, everyone who works to teach and instruct others is carrying out the will of God. It is not God's will that, that the world be unlivable and uncomfortable. Everybody who helps to build a home, to fix a home, to keep a home, in everything we do, we are seeking to carry out the will of God. And in later verses in the song, we're going to say on that day, the great I am, the faithful and the true, the Lamb who was for sinners slain is making all things new. Your hope as you labor is not that if we all do a good enough job, we'll fix the world. It ain't going to happen. No matter how well we work, the world will not be the place it was meant to be. Our hope instead is that God because of what Christ has done to reconcile the world to Himself, God will make all things new. Until that day, you are niggle, painting a leaf, working on one little part of the tree that will be brought into reality. Your efforts, though, are not in vain, not wasted, not ever wasted, if they are with that great real promise in mind. But in the end, when we gaze upon the fruits of our works, we will each of us, one and all, no matter which leaf we painted, no matter how well we did, we will say, not all glory be to me. Not look at what I did. Look at what I've produced. Look at how hard I worked. Look at what I've done. We will instead say, no. Behold, the Lamb, the great I am, all glory be to Christ. Work with that goal in mind. And if you do, your work will not fail because His kingdom will come. His will will be done, and all glory will be to Christ. So let us pray with that promise and that hope before us. Heavenly Father, we praise You that You've given us a good thing in work. And yes, sin has deceived us and in many cases frustrated us and put us in places we don't want to be, working in ways that we don't desire to work, but it is not wasted, it is redeemed, it is a part of the great and glorious work that You have for us. So we cling to the promise made true in Christ that these things have meaning, they are not in vain, and we will see the goodness that You intended for all of us. Make us strong until that day. Give us a reward for our labors and lead us to rest. We pray this in our Savior's name.